Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Uh, as Joe said, if you're a visitor with us, we appreciate you being here this morning. And um, we're studying through the book of John, and we come to a text in John chapter 5 that sometimes is actually a bit controversial. If you notice in John, John chapter 5, John chapter 7, at the end of John chapter 7, right at the beginning of John chapter 8, most of you in your translations have uh, a statement. It has some brackets around it. Mine says the earliest manuscripts do not include John seven fifty three. Uh, verses uh, to, down to 8.11. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but there's really two primary reasons for that. Uh, the first is the language of this text uh, that we're looking at this morning, it really doesn't match John. There are words that are used in this text in the Greek language that don't actually match the language that John uses. In fact, he doesn't use several of the words that are used in this ever in this gospel. And so it makes it makes scholars go, something's off here, something's not matching. In fact, most scholars say and, and suggest and think that this is actually Luke that writes this. There are several things that are in this that are specific to Luke and, and to Acts. Who, Luke wrote Luke and Acts, and, and, and the specific to the language that he uses. He records several times that Jesus went to the temple to teach and then retreats to the Mount of Olives. We hear that in this text. Uh, he uses the word dawn, or early in the morning, the word dawn in, in the Greek language there, and only Luke uses that word. Uh, he uses a different word for people in this text, and only Luke uses that word. And so a lot of scholars say this is likely Luke writing this, and so it doesn't really match the language. Another primary reason, and it's in your footnote there, is that this text was not in the earliest Greek manuscripts that we have for the Gospel of John. If you came to the seminar that we did uh, called From God to Us, uh, and by the way, all that audio and the teaching notes and everything are online now on the website. You can go uh, check that out. There's actually three texts in the Bible, Romans 5, 1, John, this section here, and then the end of Mark, that scholars are not quite sure where they go. They, they, this particular text, they believe, was a manuscript fragment, a piece of a larger manuscript that was found, and scholars say scribes were likely trying to find a home for this. Where does this fit that least disrupts the flow of the text? Now, what they often point to, though, uh, is the fact that this text, it, it carries the same tone, the same character, the same attributes, the same gospel message that is dripping from page to page in the scriptures. And so there's no doubt among scholars, there's no doubt throughout history of the church that this is something that's true of the life of Jesus. What the question is, is where does it fit? And so in search for a place to find its home, they placed it here because the scene is at the temple with Jesus teaching. Where have we been for the last entire chapter and for the last several weeks? And where will we be through chapter 8? In the temple where Jesus is teaching. Uh, what, what, what's the tone of the language here? It's addressing judgment. What has Jesus been doing in chapter 7? Repeatedly, he's addressing the Pharisees who judge based on outward appearances, but not based on the heart, John 7, 24. And so what happens in this text this morning is, again, Pharisees placing or, or making or passing judgment based on external realities, behavior, not based on the heart. And so for all those reasons, though it is not original to the original manuscript in the Greek language to the Gospel of John, everyone throughout, scholars throughout, say we can't dismiss it. We, we can't 
ignore this text. It, it is true of who Jesus is. Now, what I hope that we will see this morning, and I hope that you'll ask the, the same thing as we study through this, test, this, this, this text, is does this sound like Jesus? Does this have the flavor and the words and the character and the tone and the attitude and the actions of Jesus? Is it consistent with the gospel message? Is it consistent through and through with the gospel? And when we say gospel, we're not talking about the first four books of the Bible, the gospels. We're talking about the message that though we are sinners, we should be crushed. Though we are sinners and should be crushed, Jesus died on our behalf, substituting himself for us. That's the good news. That's what gospel means. The good news of the gospel. And so as we study this text, does the message of the gospel resonate through each word in each page. And I hope that this morning as we study this text that you'll see this, this text. And as I study it this week, there's just no doubt this is dripping from the life and works and words of Jesus. And we'll see that this morning. This text, just to give a little bit more context on it specifically, the Pharisees are pitting Jesus. The, 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 they're trying to argue that he pit the law Verse grace. They're trying to make him decide which will he obey. Will he obey the law or will he obey grace? Will he, will he agree that yes, this woman should be stoned or will he show her great compassion and great grace? And Jesus does what only Jesus can do and he sidesteps the entire argument and he takes the, the spotlight away from the argument that they're trying to catch him in the trap that they're trying to set for him, he takes it away from that and he puts it squarely on their hearts. And he shines the gospel light on their hearts. And then, and he does that in a strong rebuke, and then what he does is he shifts the gospel spotlight to this woman. This woman that is despairing of shame. And he shines the gospel on her life as well. So he rebukes the arrogant and he comforts the brokenhearted. He is the perfect mixture of law and grace, of truth and love, of holiness and hope. And we'll see that in this text this morning. So here's where we're going to go. We're looking at the trap that the Pharisees set. We're going to look at the rebuke that Jesus issues to them. And how he does it is masterful. It's unbelievable. There's, this is, again, there's no way in my mind, that anyone else but the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus himself, the Messiah, can do this. The way he does it is so beautiful. And then we're going to see the gospel on display with how he encounters this woman this morning. So the trap, the rebuke, and the gospel. Let's look at the trap here that the Pharisees set. It says, early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They're trying to trap Jesus in this moment. Just so you know, the scribes think... um, Think professor, think lawyer, think a profession, okay? So they're experts in a specific field. Their specific field is the law of God, the entire Old Testament, particularly the first five books of the Bible, but especially the Old Testament, and then also the oral teachings, the historic teachings on the Old Testament. They're experts in it. They're, they, they, they've memorized it. They know it through and through. Remember that. They know it through and through. They're experts in the law. Think profession. When you think Pharisees, think think a group of people. Think 
like uh, modern political parties, Republican, Democrat, think, think a group of people. That's what the Pharisees were. They also were meticulous in keeping the law. They, among all the others, there were really three groups. I wouldn't call them political parties, but three groups of, of people at the time, the Essenes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. The Pharisees w- would, would be the ones that were meticulous in keeping the law. The Sadducees would be a different group. They didn't agree with all of the teachings of the law. And then the Essenes were the separatist elite group that, that moved out into caves into the desert wilderness. And so you have these three different groups of people here. The scribes and the Pharisees, these, these, these elite lawyers of the law, or, or experts in the law, bring this woman to Jesus. And they're seeking to trap her. Verse 6 says it clearly. Trap him, rather. That's their entire purpose. They're, 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 they, they, far, they don't care about the woman. They, she sinned, that she's in, in sin, that she's committed adultery, that she's breaking the law. They really don't care about her. What they're seeking to do, based on verse 6, is to bring some kind of charge against Jesus. They're trying to trap him. The word trap there means to trick, to trip up, or to gain evidence to prove wrong. That's what they're trying to do here. They're against Jesus. That's who they're after. That's what they want to do. While, and it's fascinating because it says they grasped her. That's what the original language says. They grasped her and draw, drew her and dragged her into the midst. What's fascinating is the same word for grasped her is the same word that John has used in the beginning of the gospel, catalambano, for those who did not grasp Jesus or cling to Jesus. So while they grasp her and grasp for something to trick Jesus, they don't grasp who he is. I think that's interesting in the language there. And so they're seeking to catch him in a lie. Now, what's also interesting and we need to draw out is it says twice in the text, verse 3 and verse 4, that she was caught in adultery in verse 3 and caught in the act of adultery in verse 4. So so there's no doubt about it. She's been caught red-handed in the act of adultery, there's no speculation about it. There's no wondering. There's no suspicion. I think she might have acted and, and committed adultery. No, no, no. It's caught in the act. So it's clear there were witnesses there that, that they saw it with their own eyes that she was in the act of adultery with, with someone else. And so there's no doubt here in this, in this moment. And they bring her to Jesus and they ask him, In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? Again, they're pitting the law against grace, and they're trying to trip him up. The law says this. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, it says that anyone caught in adultery was supposed to be put to death. It's clear, Exodus 20, verse 14, that absolutely adultery is a sin. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, says that that a person caught in adultery is to be put to death. Deuteronomy 22.22, a person who's caught in adultery is to be put to death. And the evil should be purged from the midst of Israel. That's what 22.22 says. So it's very clear that if he shows compassion, he will be breaking the law. If he shows forgiveness, if he overlooks this sin, he will be breaking the law. And we've got him. That's what they think. Now, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, it's widely known. It's, it's, it's known throughout. 
that Jesus is a person who is gentle and kind and merciful and forgiving and gracious and compassionate. And it's widely known that he's gentle and that he welcomes sinners. We see that in every single one of the Gospels that he welcomes sinners. Sinners are those who are intentionally rebellious. He welcomes tax collectors, those who are, who are deemed as thieves among the people of Israel. He welcomes lepers. Doesn't just welcome them, though. What does he do? He touches lepers. The untouchable, he touches. The cast-offs, he takes in. So much so that people began to accuse Jesus of being a drunkard and, and a swindler and, and, and like these people because he so readily accepted them. So it's widely known that Jesus is gentle and caring and compa- uh, com- compassionate and, and that he forgives sins. He always forgives sins. What's wrong with him? That's what the people are th- these Pharisees are thinking. He always extends grace. And so on the other hand, if, if he upholds the law and says, yes, stone her, then he'll lack gentleness. He'll lack compassion. He'll lack forgiveness, and all the people will see him for who he really is. That's what they think. We've got him, on the one hand, and we've got him, on the other hand. And I love this. Jesus goes, no, you don't. (laughs) You've got nothing on me. And that's what he does in this text, and it's beautiful, and it's unbelievable. What will Jesus do? That's what's rising. The tension is rising in the text. What will Jesus do? Will he side with the law, and will he show that she should be stoned, and therefore no compassion? Will, will, he, will he side with grace, and therefore break the law? Jesus says, no, neither, or actually both, because he is the perfect fulfillment of the law and grace. He's the perfect fulfillment of truth and love, the perfect fulfillment of holiness and hope, the perfect mixture of these two things. Only he and he alone can be that. And so he turns and he rebukes them. The scribes and the Pharisees caught this woman and they're, they're, they're bringing him, this woman to him. She's been caught in the act. It's clear that she's, she's, she's broken the law and now they bring her to him to test him. And the question at hand is, what will he do? Which will he side with? And Jesus does something that only Jesus can do. Only the Son of God can do. Only the Messiah can do. He shifts the conversation. He shifts the spotlight from their accusations against the woman and their trap against him. He shifts all the spotlight to their hearts. And what do we know through every single page of the gospel? This is what Jesus has come after. He's come after your heart. He's come after my heart. He's come after our hearts because it's our hearts that are broken before God. It's our hearts that are bent towards sin. It's our hearts that are dead in sin and need to be revived. A heart of stone taken out and a heart of flesh put in. And Jesus moves the spotlight and zeroes in on their hearts. He shifts it from external accusations and external performance, and he shifts it and places it squarely on their hearts. Now, what's interesting is first, he bends down, verse 6, he does this twice, he bends down and he writes with his finger on the ground. And, and just to be clear, there is so much widespread speculation on this. What did Jesus write? That's what everybody's wondering this morning. You've probably been ignoring me up until this point. Oh, he's going to tell me what he wrote in the sand. Oh, here it is. We're going to find out this morning. No, you're not. It's speculation. And anything that we put forward would be just that. It would be speculation. 
There are so many texts that have been put forward that he could have been writing. Some say he's just doodling. (laughs) Some say he's just drawing pictures, maybe tic-tac-toe. Who knows what he's doing? But there are a number of texts that have been put forward. Did he, was he writing Exodus 23.1? Exodus 23.1 says this. Next slide. You shall, know, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be malicious witness. Is that what he's writing in the ground? Exodus 23.7. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous. Another popular one is Jeremiah 17.3. All who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Anyone who forsakes God shall be written in the earth. Another place is Numbers chapter 5. There's a a prescription that the priests were supposed to follow if a woman was suspected of committing adultery. What is this woman? She's not suspected. She's caught in the act. In Numbers chapter 5, it says that if a woman is caught or suspected of of committing adultery, then bring her before the priest, and the priest is to take bitter water and dust from the earth and mix the two. And the idea is, then she's supposed to drink the water. The idea is, if she did it and she drinks the water, then you'll see torment and pain in her life. If she did not do it and she drinks the water, then clearly God's grace is upon her. She did not commit adultery. Adultery. So it was a test, a measure of figuring out if someone committed adultery. We're not trying to figure out if she committed adultery. She's caught in the act. So, so it's not anything that we say is, is a suspicion. What is clear, though, is that these Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, this one was caught in an act of adultery. Law of Moses says we're supposed to stone her. What do you say? And Jesus bends down and he writes. And in the text, in the next verse it says, and they continued asking. They persisted in asking. What do you say? What do you say? Jesus, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What Jesus is clearly doing, whatever he's writing on the sand, what he's clearly doing is saying, I don't answer to you. You answer to me. What he's clearly showing them is he doesn't jump to their every beck and call. He doesn't submit to them. They must submit to him. And what he does is he then stands up and he says this amazing statement here, often confused, but he says this amazing statement. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast a stone at her. Let's let's read that again. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast a stone at her. According to the law, adultery was punishable by death. The scribes and the Pharisees had that right. But here's what's fascinating. They were twisting the law to their benefit, and they misrepresented the law. Let's read what Leviticus 20.10 actually says. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, she is supposed to be stoned. Is that what that says? Both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, she shall die. Is that what that says? You were so confident last time. No, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. What Jesus stands up to them and says 
is let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast a stone. Both the adulterer and the adulteress are supposed to be stoned. If they were caught in the act, then there were two people. Where is the man? Why has the man not been brought forward? If they were caught in the act, then both were to be stoned. Why is the woman the only one being accused and therefore being stoned here or or brought charges against so that she could be stoned? If both were supposed to be put to death, why do the scribes and Pharisees say? It says it in verse 5. Moses commanded us to stone such women. What's going on here? Here's a better question. Are the scribes and the Pharisees actually obeying and following the law? What Jesus is revealing to them is that you do not keep the law. The law that you worship and serve and submit to, you don't even know it. You don't even keep it. And when you do, you keep it only to the, when it benefits you. You bend it to your will and to your benefit. Jesus is shining the bright spotlight of the gospel on their behavior and their motives and their life before God. Here's what's fascinating. He's humbling the arrogant. He's bringing them low by revealing to them that the very thing that they say they're trying to keep, they are breaking. They do not know it. They misapply it, and they're breaking it. Now, here's what's even more amazing. It's how he did it. It's how he did it. Jesus not only confronts and rebukes and humbles the arrogant and reveals that they break the law, he does it with the law. He does it by the law. Here's here's a fascinating thing. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17. Look, Look at what this says here. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If there was a charge, the witnesses were supposed to be the first to step forward and to cast stones. Jesus does not say that. Jesus says something radically different. He says... In verse 7, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Let him who is without sin among you be the one to purge sin from among you. Now here's the thing. He's doing two amazing things. Just to be clear, Jesus is not saying that we must be sinless before we can confront or rebuke sin. That is not what he's teaching here, and this is where it's often misunderstood. I can't confront sin because there's sin in me, and I have to be sinless to, to confront sin. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's doing two things. He's forcing them and us to inward examination. He's forcing us to examine our own hearts He's teaching us that the gospel always applies to our hearts before it applies to others' hearts. That the sword of judgment is double-edged, and before we bring down the blade on someone else, we must bring the blade to our own hearts. He's teaching us that before we shine the spotlight on others, we must first shine it on ourselves. Are you innocent? 
Here's what he's asking. On the one hand, he's asking these, these Pharisees and these scribes, are you innocent of the accusation that you're bringing against her? Adultery? Adultery is widespread at this time throughout Israel. Are you innocent of adultery? He's also asking them, are you innocent in your motives and why you brought her here? Are you innocent? The word here, for the, and it says that he was without sin, it means to be guiltless or, or sinless. And again, he's not saying that we should be sinless before we can confront sin. He's forcing us to shine the, the spotlight on ourselves. Calvin says this, Every man ought to begin by interrogating his own conscience and by acting both as a witness and judge against himself before he comes to others. Put, another commentator says this, put more generally, God's call to all of us all of the time is to live holy, godly lives, and any deviation from that should concern us as much in ourselves as in others. The gospel always applies to my heart before it applies to yours. I must always shine the light on my heart before I shine it on yours. That's what he's teaching here. That's the first thing he's doing. He's forcing the scribes and Pharisees to move within themselves and examine their own hearts. But the second thing he's doing, and it's amazing here, is he does not say she should not be condemned. That's so important for us to notice. He doesn't say she should not be condemned. She said, he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. In fact, he's saying she should be condemned, but only by someone who is innocent only an innocent one can purge sin from your midst. Only the one who is innocent and free from breaking the law can purge evil from your midst. So what's going on here? On the one hand, he's asking the scribes and Pharisees to inspect their hearts. Are you innocent in this issue at hand? Are you innocent in your motives in bringing her forward? Are you innocent of the very thing you accuse her of? Have you kept the law perfectly? He's already shown that they have not. And now he's gone after their hearts. That's what he's doing on the one hand. On the other hand, he's revealing to them their only hope. He's revealing to them that the perfect law keeper stands in front of them. He's revealing to them and he's rebuking them graciously. He's humbling the arrogant, but he's holding out hope. There's no one innocent in this scene except for me. That's what Jesus is saying. There's no one perfect here except for me. There's no one who fulfills the law except for me. There is no one who is your hope except for me. He's holding out the gospel to them. And it's fascinating. He's doing both of these, confronting but holding out hope. He's rebuking graciously. I think one more observation about this before we move on. I think it's fascinating as well. If there's one thing that a legalist can never be sure of, it's if they've done enough to keep the law perfectly. Some of you are inner, inner legalists. You, you preach law against yourself repeatedly, and if there's one thing that I know for sure is that you can never be sure if you've done enough to please God. You remember when we went through the Five Sola series this past summer, we talked about Martin Luther. Martin Luther, many called a religious neurotic because he would go to con make confession to a priest and he would always wonder if that was enough and so he'd run to the next church and he'd make confession to that priest and then he didn't know if that was enough so he'd go to the next church and then he would go to mass and he'd go to mass and he'd partake in the Lord's Supper. Is that enough? Did I do enough? I don't know. Have I had a bad thought since? I need to go to another mass and he'd go to another one. Why? Because he never knew if he did enough. 
And what Jesus has revealed here is that their hope is themselves. That they think that they've done enough, that they are perfect law keepers, and he's revealed to them, you're not a perfect law keeper. There's only one perfect law keeper. I'm standing right here. His name is Jesus. That's what he's revealing to them. And what's fascinating is after shifting the conversation from their outward accusations down to their heart and revealing to them that they don't keep the law, that they break the law, and that there is no one perfect, it says here in the text, and once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. We don't know what. In verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman staying there before him. Let me, let's think about this for a second. An angry crowd of hyper-religious Pharisees have just come to Jesus and they've been standing over him and the language there has been persistent and, and demanding an answer. This woman's caught in adultery. The law says we should stone her. What do you say, Jesus? What do you say, Jesus? What do you say? He stands up. He shifts the spotlight to the, with the gospel to their hearts. He shows that they break the law, that they are not perfect. And then the angry mob just walks away quietly without a word? How many angry mobs, I've never been in one, but maybe you have, how many angry mobs have you ever seen when everyone's just, just angry and yelling and screaming, someone stands up and says something so perfect and so eloquent and everyone says, oh, and just quiets and walks away. Don't you see? This is the Messiah speaking and he has just nailed them. He has just spoken to their issue. He has just addressed the greatest issue in their life and they know it. There's no other explanation. And they walk away silent. They walk away because they know they are not perfect. And what's tragic about it is they walk away from the only one who is perfect They walk away from their hope. They don't run to him. And that's the question we have to ask this morning. Is that you? Are you keeping Jesus at hand, at distance? Are you keeping him at distance because you think you're enough and you're actually pushing him away? You're walking away from him instead of despairing of yourself and embracing the only perfect one who stands in your midst. This text is fascinating. So he, they lay a trap for him. He rebukes them. He brings the gospel to bear on their, their hearts and their lives. He rebukes them and offers them hope. He rebukes them graciously. But there's another thing that he does in this text, and it's the thing that we all skip to. It's the thing we're all drawn to because this is who we all are and we all desperately want. He comes to the gospel. And he, he turns. He's left there, it says, with this woman who's standing in front of them, and, and it's just, they're left alone. It's just Jesus and her standing there. And what's fascinating is where he rebuked graciously, now he graciously rebukes. He turns the gospel, and he, he uses the gospel masterfully. To the arrogant, he brings them low. He shows them their pride, and he brings them low with holiness. To the hurt and to the broken, he brings them up. And he comforts the brokenhearted. And this is so amazing. The woman stands condemned. It's absolutely clear. She's caught in an act of adultery. The law says that she should be condemned. She's cursed according to the law. Justice must be satisfied. Someone must be put to death. What will Jesus do? 
That's what we're being led to ask in this text. Immediately we see where the scribes and the Pharisees heaped condemnation and shame, Jesus covers her disgrace with his grace. Where they wanted to heap condemnation, he heaps forgiveness. Where they wanted to stone her to death, Jesus came to be stoned on her behalf, to die on her behalf. Where they wanted to condemn, Jesus forgives. Where they used her to get at Jesus, he gave himself for her. Do you know why you're attracted to this? It's because your heart is longing for this. This is what we all desperately want. Every single one of us. We, every single one of us want to be accepted. We want to be known. And we want to be embraced. Despite all of our flaws. Because every one of us knows that we're flawed. Every one of us carries around shame from our sin. And we feel like everyone sees it all the time. Everybody's staring at me. Everybody knows. Everybody knows what I did. Everybody knows what I am. We cannot get rid of it. And Jesus says, I know exactly what you are and I want you. I know exactly who you are. I know exactly what you've done. And I embrace you. We all desperately long for this. Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, which is a positive term at this time, by the way, don't misunderstand that not so much maybe in our day this is positive here woman where are they has no one condemned you she says no one lord he says neither do i condemn you go and from now on sin no more listen if we're not careful we'll just rush i mean that's fascinating that's beautiful language right there but if we're not careful we'll just run right by right by what he has just done here We have to understand what's being said here. In legal terms, to condemn is to pronounce a guilty verdict and and a sentence to punishment. It's to pronounce a a guilty verdict and to pronounce judgment or punishment on somebody. So to not condemn a person is to declare that person to be in right standing. In theological terms and in legal terms, the opposite of condemnation is justification. It means to be in right standing before God. And he says, neither do I condemn you. In the most simplest language, what is Jesus doing here? He's forgiving her sins. And this is what we have to be so careful about. We'll run right by this. Don't miss this. He, who does not apparently seem to be the one that's been offended in the text here, is forgiving her sins How is that? Only if her sins are chiefly and firstly against him can he do that. This is what C.S. Lewis says. It's a long quote, not on the screens. Don't freak out. I know sometimes we get a little worried about that. I'm just going to read to you. I want you to listen to it, okay? C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. He says, this is one of the most shocking things that Jesus does. Among these Jews, there were suddenly, this turns up, this suddenly, this man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. One part of the claim tends to slip past us unnoticed because we have heard it so often that we no longer see what it amounts to. I mean the claim to forgive sins, any sins. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toes, I forgive you. You steal my money, I forgive you. But what should we make of a man himself, unrobbed and untrodden on, who announced that he forgave you 
for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money. C.S. Lewis says, asinine fatuity, which I have no idea what that means, but I think it means crazy, is the kindest description we should give this conduct. Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. How can Jesus forgive her sins? Because he is the true and better spouse she has committed adultery against. Our sins are against God and God alone. Our sins are against God first and foremost. This is what David prays in Psalm 51 when he finally understands the weight and the magnitude of his sins. Yes, I sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, I sinned against Uriah. Yes, I've sinned in this world. But my sins are first and foremost against a holy God. This is what Joseph prays, what he says when he's tempted to, to sleep with Potiphar's wife and when she's tempting him. He says, far be it for me to sin against my God. He doesn't say, far be it for me to sin against your husband. Far be it for me to sin against my God. It, it's, it's first and foremost a sin against God. The only way that Jesus can forgive in this way how can Jesus forgive her sins? How can Jesus say, neither do I condemn you? How can Jesus extend such remarkable grace? It's only because Jesus is the true and better spouse she sinned against. It's only because Jesus is the one who came in the flesh to take her condemnation and stoning. It's only because Jesus alone has authority on earth to forgive sins. Luke 5, 24. If... So a few weeks ago, Addie went 17-month-old. For those of your visitors, I have a 17-month-old, and she uh, knocked over a lamp in our house. Um, she went and grabbed the cord. She looked at me, and she yanked, right? <laughs> and even if she had not looked at me and didn't know what she was doing, which still looking at me doesn't mean she did. Either way, she broke the lamp, right? Now, I only have two choices. I can charge her account for the lamp, or I can charge my account for the lamp. Now, if I were to charge her account for the lamp, she has nothing to pay back, nothing with which she give me. What's she going to pay me back with? Diapers, right? <laughs> Butt paste? No. I bought those. What's she going to pay me back with? Everything she has is mine. This is the argument that God makes to Job. This is the argument Anselm of Canterbury makes. With what will we pay back God? We have nothing we can pay him back. The only answer is if he absorbs the cost himself. The only answer is if he takes the blow himself on our behalf. The only answer is if he pays for the lamp that we broke. And that's exactly what he did in Jesus. He put forward Jesus as our offering to satisfy his own wrath. Our sins are against a holy God, and only a holy God can satisfy his own justice and wrath. And that's what he did in Jesus. And that's the only reason Jesus can say, neither do I condemn you. Why? Because I've come to take the stoning on your behalf. I've come to be condemned on your behalf. 
I've come to die the death that you deserve. I lived the life that you could not live. I'm the only perfect law keeper. And I've come to die on your behalf. And here's the other thing we sometimes miss. Sometimes say, well, look, Jesus is just condoning sin. He's saying, therefore, go and do whatever you want to do. No, (laughs) read the text. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. I read this this week, Matt Carter, commentator on this. He says, Jesus is not giving her a license to keep on sinning. He gives her a reason to stop. Think about what he's saying. Think about what Jesus is saying in this text. He's leading with grace and then calling for obedience, not the other way around. He shows her extraordinary, remarkable grace, and that leads to joy, joyful obedience. Not the other way around. We, are not, we don't do in order to be accepted. We are accepted, and therefore we do. Don't you see that in Jesus, all our have-tos turn to get-tos? All of his, this is what 1 John says, all of his, bur- all of his laws and his, and, and his commands are not burdensome, they're joys. Why? Because I should have been crushed. I should have been stoned. When I see the cross and meditate on the cross and I see the one who died on my behalf, I can't help but give my life. I can't help but serve and go and give and do. I can't help but do whatever he commands. It's my joy. And that's what he's saying here. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The motivation to obey is his grace, his extraordinary grace. Let's end with a couple of application points. First, which person are you in this text this morning? I'll give you a hint. You're not Jesus. You're not the perfect one in the text. And as Joe prayed, sometimes I'm both people in the text. But this morning, seriously, I want you to think about Which one are you? There's two different groups here. There are those that thought they were innocent, but in fact, they received rebuke and they stood guilty before God. And then there were those that knew that they were guilty and what they received was grace. Which one are you this morning? Are you like the Pharisees who thought they were innocent, but in reality had never had the light of the gospel of Christ shine in their dark hearts? Or are you someone who recognizes that they're wounded and weak and covered in shame? Do you see that your, your Savior stands with open arms this morning, welcome to receive you and embrace you? Second application point or question, are you running to Jesus this morning? Or are you keeping him at bay, stiff-arming him, so to speak, keeping him at a distance, trusting in yourself, Are you wounded this morning? Are you covered in shame? Your sin may not be exposed to the world, but you feel like it. You feel like nobody could ever accept me if they knew who I really was and what I've done in my past. You feel like nobody could ever care for me if they really knew who I was. You're covered in shame. Do you feel that no one could love you if they they knew you? you? Do you see the glorious good news of the gospel this morning? Jesus knows exactly who you are, and he stands with open arms. And he calls you and he invites you to come home. He invites you to be embraced by him. He offers his grace to cover your disgrace. There's only one who knows you better than yourself, and his name is Jesus. He knows you intimately, 
and he still loves you. He loves you so much that he came to take your shame and to take your condemnation and to die the death that you deserve. And he invites you to come to him. Simultaneously, just like the Pharisees in this text, are you one that thinks that you're innocent and confident that you don't actually need Jesus? Don't you see that the perfect one is standing in your face? He's inviting you to come and embrace him. A last question application. How are you fighting sin? I think one of the things that's fascinating here is, is how Jesus uses the gospel and how he confronts those who are prideful and humbles them and how he confronts those who are in despair and he gives them hope. Are you trying to fight the gospel with the law or with the gospel? Are you trying to fight sin rather with the law or the gospel? Think about what we do when we try to attack sin, either in our hearts or in our friends or someone who brings it to us or someone who confesses it to us. Think about what we do when we're bringing simply our sins to the law. When we say, I'm, I'm really struggling with anxiety, what do we do? Stop being so anxious. Do you know what that does to an anxious person? Makes them more anxious. Do, what do we say to prideful people? Stop it. That's bringing the law. Okay, let's spiritualize it. Be more humble. We're just appealing to willpower. We're just appealing to the law. But in the gospel, what do we say to anxious people? Look at the face of Jesus and be melted by what he did on your behalf. Are you anxious? Look at the cross. Look at the one who conquered the greatest thing you should fear, sin and death. Look at the one who says, though you are anxious, come to me and I and the Prince of Peace will take you and give you rest. What do we say with the gospel to the prideful person? Not just be humble, not stop being prideful. No, don't you see the cross? Don't you see that you are so sinful someone had to die? Don't you see that you're not perfect? That you don't have all the answers? Don't you see that Jesus does? Look to the cross and be melted by it, by what he did on your behalf. Let's review real quickly what has happened here. I think it's fascinating. I have three points this morning. The trap, the rebuke, and the gospel. I think it's fascinating here. Think for a moment about what we've heard this morning. Can you think of another time in the scriptures where enemies, an enemy, came and twisted truth in order to deceive. Okay, I'll answer Genesis chapter 3. Our enemy Satan, who is a formidable foe. Think about Matthew chapter 4. What does he do with Jesus? He comes and he tempts and he does it with the truth. But what does he do? He twists the truth. He presents a lie. Our enemy is constantly attempting to trap us and he's always doing it with a lie. But notice what Jesus does. He rebukes with truth. He rebukes with truth. And the truth that he rebukes with is the word of God. And what is the word always pointing us to? It's the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done on our behalf. That's the gospel. And that's how we fight a formidable foe like our enemy Satan, who is constantly fishing, constantly attacking, constantly waiting to, to deceive, to devour, and to destroy. We respond with truth, the truth of God's word and the truth of the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray this morning.